Hi, thanks for listening. In 20 seconds or less, I wanted to ask if you would consider supporting the show with a one-time donation of $1 to $3. The funds go to subscription fees, equipment upkeep, and a general sense of well-being. Links in the show notes. And again, thanks for listening. Okay, on with the show. Chapter 20 The city of Woodford loved its football. The citizens loved all their professional sports franchises, and the mayor and the city council loved its revenue. To that end, the civic powers that be had made it all but impossible for the state's football and baseball teams to build their stadiums anywhere else. Huge tax incentives, kickbacks, and glad-handing ensured that if anybody wanted to see a major event, they had to come to Woodford to do it. The Wranglers were the professional football team. The owners, along with the city, had completed construction on a billion-dollar stadium, complete with massive doors made of 18-inch thick clear polycarbonate that could be opened at either end, and a retractable roof. It sat on the landscape and could be seen for miles in all directions. It looked like the mothership recently arrived from some far-off exotic alien world. The new stadium was built on the same piece of real estate that the old stadium sat upon. Out of a sense of athletic honor and respect for the old, the new stadium was built around and over the same grass field upon which the Wranglers had played since their forming. The stadium sat across the street from one of the largest stores in the Allmart chain. Allmart, we've got it all, was their slogan. It was not creative or insightful, but nobody cared. They had become such a national entity with their big-box floor plans and buy-in-bulk business strategy that everyone in the country shopped at one at one time or another. They were like Coke. If they never had another commercial, business probably would not drop off that much. The city of Woodford was laid out in concentric circles, the center being the entertainment and business district. All roads led to it. A major thoroughfare ran around the business district, the idea being that citizens could drive the circle and enjoy the many fine eating and entertainment establishments that lined the ring. Parking was free on the weekends, and commercial lots on the circle went at a premium. At the center of the center, sat the Liberty Bell Stadium. It was not named in commemoration of the country's founding, and it certainly was not named for the Wranglers, who played there. Like everything else, the naming rights were sold to the highest bidder. In this case, Liberty Bell Insurance. Paul Baxter worked maintenance at the stadium. He knew the building well enough to know that when the massive doors at either end were secured, the place was sealed up tight, like a fortress. He was a divorcee. His wife became convinced that life was far too short to stay married to a glorified janitor. Paul and Connie Baxter had one daughter between them, Jordan, a brown-eyed beauty of sixteen years who was destined to break hearts. A daddy's girl, she chose to stay with her father after the divorce. 
Her mother fought it, not because she wanted to see more of Jordan, but to cause pain for Paul. In a rare turn of events, the court favored the father in the custody hearing, and Paul and Jordan remained together. Connie Baxter moved two states over and stopped caring about Jordan's visitations. Consequently, Jordan did not see much of her mother after the divorce. Of course, they never heard anything from her after the apocalypse. When current events told Paul things were not going to get better, he knew that his two-story townhouse was not the place to be. He and Jordan piled some belongings in the station wagon and hightailed it to Liberty Bell Stadium. Paul activated the massive doors, and he and Jordan had a new home of several million square feet. Paul knew they could not stay there forever, but with the resources already in the stadium and the massive Walmart across the street, he figured they could stay safe and well-fed for almost forever. When hundreds of the citizens of Woodford made a run at the military choke points outside the city, Paul stayed put. Those who were left were citizens of a new order, their station in life reduced to shuffler, runner, or crawler. Thousands of them remained in Woodford, each one in a different state of dead, but all of them hungry. The bulk of them found their way to the central hub and wandered together in a massive horde, like African ants moving their colony. Like those killer ants, anything that got in their path was swarmed and consumed. Paul knew this, knew it all too well. It was because of this that he had convinced Trevor Hamilton, his assistant at the stadium, that the dead had to be organized. Everybody thought of Paul as the janitor, but Paul studied things, learned how they worked, what made them tick. He watched the dead roam the city through the thick, clear doors. He noticed that they moved along with no stated purpose. He remembered how they attacked, not as hunters, but as opportunists. They would move along until something got in their way, which made them not as smart as the African ant, but just as lethal. He figured if he could get them all moving in one direction, get them all focused, he would have some room to move himself. It had almost worked. The cost was high. Trevor didn't make it. The horde now roamed the central hub, turning the circular thoroughfare into a grim merry-go-round. After he got them moving the way he wanted, Paul watched them through the massive clear polycarbonate doors. It took 30 minutes for the entire horde to pass, and another 90 minutes to come back around. During those 90 minutes, you wouldn't even know they were there. An hour and a half window for Paul and Jordan to get out and get back with whatever they needed across the street. Paul had watched them for a week, noting the time it took for them to make their round trip an egg-timer of death that meant life for Paul and Jordan. Twice a week, he would go to the Allmart and stock up on supplies. And today had been shopping day. He and Jordan got back with time to spare. Paul always made sure they got back with time to spare. Occasionally, Paul would cave to Jordan's pleas to stay out a little bit longer after shopping. They would walk the section of the hub the dead weren't on. Paul kept one eye on Jordan and one on his watch, always getting back with that precious time to spare. The GTO hit the circle with the bus behind. Nicole scanned both sides of the street as they drove. There, Nicole said, as she pointed at the massive Walmart. 
She stuck out her arm and signaled to Walt, who flashed his lights, indicating he got her signal. Walt and Nicole pulled their vehicles up to the curb in front of the store. Nicole and Sam got out and met Walt and Billy on the sidewalk. Load up on whatever you think you need, but food is what will keep us from having to stop again for a while, Nicole said. You want me to take watch again on the bus, man? Walt said. Might be a good idea, Walt. Place looks like a ghost town, but you never know, Nicole said. Well, how will I notify you if I see something and you guys are inside? Walt said. Nicole thought about this for a second. When we get inside, the first thing I'll look for is some radios. We should have them for traveling anyhow. If you see something before then, fire three shots in the air. We'll leave the doors open, and we should be able to hear that, Nicole said. Walt nodded and then headed back to his bus. Nicole turned to go into the store, then turned back. Anything in particular you want us to look for in there? Nicole said. Walt thought about it a second. Some fresh fruit would be nice, but doubt you'll find any of that. Frozen is good, too he said. Nicole turned and entered the store as Billy and Sam pulled the sliding doors apart. Across the street in the stadium, Jordan rollerbladed around the concrete perimeter of the football field. She gyrated to Firework by Katy Perry, blaring over the stadium's sound system. The song faded out, and her own song came on. As a present on her 16th birthday, Connie and Paul hired a local musician, who ran a small production company. For a fee, he would write a song just for you and then make a video of your performance. Best Day of the Week was Jordan's song. Jordan and her parents thought it was something cute, a home movie of sorts to view years later and have a laugh. When Jordan loaded it on YouTube and it went viral, nobody could believe the response. The video got over two million hits. Most of the comments were disparaging, but it was like the musician who wrote the song said, at least they were talking about it. A small record company had even paid them to press some CD singles. It was released just about the time the dead started rising, and the short life of Jordan's song became even shorter. Jordan loved her song, and much to Paul's growing agitation, she would play it over and over again. As she came around the front, her attention was caught by the open doors of the Allmart across the street. She stopped and stared at the store. On the 50-yard line, in a chaise lounge, Paul reclined and read a book about growing your own fruits and vegetables. He knew the supplies at the Allmart would not hold out forever. Consequently, he took advantage of Woodford's taste for sports nostalgia. Planted in rows along the yard lines in the football field were various fruit trees and vegetable plants. The built-in sprinkler system provided the daily waterings. The retractable roof allowed sunshine. Paul could repair almost any mechanical device, but he never considered himself a green thumb, so he read his book and prayed the plants would not die. He was about to turn the page when he noticed his daughter staring out the massive clear doors. He reached down and retrieved the remote control to the sound system and clicked off the music. He looked at his watch. Honey, they're about to pass in the next few minutes. We don't want them to notice us, he said. Jordan did not move. I don't remember us leaving the doors open when we finished shopping, do you, Dad? Jordan said. Paul froed his brow and rose from his lounge. It was a bit of a struggle. When he would meet people for the first time, 
almost invariably, they would say that he looked like the actor Kevin James. Paul enjoyed eating, and had not had to give that up to any great degree since taking up residence across from the Allmart. What are you talking about, honey? Of course we didn't leave the doors open, Paul said, as he came alongside Jordan. Well, they're open now, she said, pointing across the street. Paul looked and saw the sliding doors sitting open. His eyes were drawn to the bus, and a man standing up on top of it. Oh, no, he said, then looked at his watch. They must have just rolled up looking for supplies, he said. Paul was agitated. Jordan was slower to pick up on the ramifications of their arrival. But if they just arrived, they probably don't know about the zombies. What time is it? she said, fear playing around the edges of her question. Paul leaned up close to the clear doors and tried to look down the street to see if the horde was in sight. The streets were clear, but they were scheduled to make the circuit any minute. Paul checked his watch as if looking again would change the time on it. Should we warn them? Jordan said. Paul did not respond as his eyes darted from the store to down the street and back again. Dad? Jordan said again, her voice more stringent. I don't know. There's no time to go over there, Paul said. If they get stuck out there... Paul cut off his daughter's words. I know, I know, he barked at her and instantly felt bad about doing it. Not waiting any longer, Jordan started waving her arms over her head. Over here! Look over here! She said, directing her pleas to the man on the bus. Not knowing what else to do, Paul mimicked his daughter and started jumping up and down and waving his arms as well. Get out of there! You have to move! He said, his words mixing with his daughter's. On top of the bus, Walt looked up and down the street, but not across it. He did not notice the man and the little girl jumping and waving in the stadium behind him. The massive doors blocked sound as effectively as they did the dead. They continued to try to get Walt's attention as Nicole came out and approached the bus. In her hand were two walkie-talkies. She handed one up to Walt, who stooped down to take it. Paul and Jordan watched the woman and the man exchange some words as the man stood back up and resumed looking up and down the street. They continued to shout in vain as the woman turned and went back into the store. They're not going to make it, Dad. Those things are going to be here any second, Jordan said, tears now in her eyes. Paul was beside himself. He pulled his daughter away from the huge door. Come away from the doors, honey. There's nothing we can do, he said. Jordan looked at her father in shock as he pulled her back. Wait, we can't just leave them out there, Dad, she said, pleading. Paul's shoulders slumped. Don't look, sweetie. If those things see us, they may come over here, Paul said as he led his daughter away from the doors. Jordan cried, not taking her eyes from the street. Paul led his daughter over to the chaise lounge and sat her down. Kneeling down in front of her, he hugged her and waited for it to be over. His daughter shook in his arms, her sobs coming in waves. Paul was in anguish as he held her. Shh, it'll be over soon, baby girl, Paul said, trying to comfort his daughter. He tried and failed to not look over at the doors and the inevitable bloodbath that was about to happen, literally on their doorstep. He turned away and squeezed his eyes shut. He kicked himself for the selfish thought of how he would get the dead moving again after their normal circuit was disrupted by their fresh meal. Outside, the wind shifted. 
Pa caught the scent of something awful wafting through the ventilation, the stadium's distant early warning system, telling him that the merry-go-round of death was making another turn. On top of the bus, Walt looked off down the street in front of him and saw nothing. Turning, his jaw dropped as he stared into the wave of the dead rolling his way. His mind left him for several seconds as he tried to understand what it was he was seeing. A thousand dead shuffled his way. Walt brought the walkie to his mouth and keyed the mic. Uh, hey man, you gotta get out of there, like now, Walt said. A second later, Nicole's voice called back over the walkie. You see something, Walt? Nicole said. Walt never took his eyes off the advancing horde. More like a thousand-somethings. We've got to bug out, man. Come on, Walt said, moving to the edge of the bus. The vanguard of the horde caught his scent. They started shuffling towards him, veering off the course they had traveled without interruption for months. Walt whipped his head around as he saw Nicole, Sam, and Billy come running out of the Allmart. They froze in their tracks as they too saw what Walt had warned them was coming. Their minds were not prepared. Walt jumped down and climbed in his bus, followed by Billy. Sam and Nicole ran to the GTO. As they got into their vehicles, the dead flooded into the streets. In no time at all, the dead had blocked both ends of the street. With the road blocked in either direction, Nicole and Walt tried to push through, but their progress was slow, hindered by the sheer mass of the dead clamoring around them. This is it, man, Walt said, gripping the steering wheel, his knuckles white. Billy just stared at the horde and gripped his seat. In the GTO, Nicole tried to cut a path through the dead, but was not making ground. Sam looked around, trying to spot any space in the mob that the GTO could push through, and not seeing any. The dead pushed and slammed up against the vehicles. The GTO rocked and swayed under their onslaught. Inside, Nicole gripped the wheel and tried to navigate the horde. Sam kept his head on a swivel, looking for any out. He looked to his right. His face fell in amazement. Over there! Go there! he said, pointing. Nicole looked to where he was pointing and could not believe what she saw. Is that Kevin James? she said, seemingly in shock. Just go! Sam said as Nicole cut the wheel hard to the right and floored the gas. The GTO lurched, tires squealing, as Nicole launched the big car through the slowly rising clear polycarbonate door of Liberty Bell Stadium. The man who Nicole was growing more sure was in fact Kevin James was waving frantically in their direction. In the bus, Walt saw Nicole take the hard right and looked where she was going. All right, man! Walt said as he saw a man waving at them. Walt gunned the bus and followed Nicole into the stadium. Outside in the street, twenty yards from where Paul stood, the dead were slow to react, but react they did. As the bus headed for the entrance of the stadium, Paul was already lowering the massive door. Come on, come on, he said as the dead fell in pursuit of the bus. The big vehicle barely cleared the door as it came down, clipping the extended taillights shattering them. Just as the door hit bottom, a thousand dead piled against it, clawing and pounding. The vehicles came to a stop. Nicole, Sam, Walt, and Billy piled out. Walt rushed up to Paul. You saved us, man, he said. Paul did not hear him. His face twisted in anger. He shouted at them. Do you know what you've done? You've killed us!